Good morning once again. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be heading into chapter 2. You guys doing well? Yes. A couple of you? A few of you? Hey, good job, DB. You guys are awesome. You guys are doing a great job. I, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, we're working on our third, third cow to the missionaries in Tala, Kenya. And uh, the second one, Nancy got a letter this last week from the McDonald's and said that the kids were delighted to have milk with their porridge this last week. It brought tears to my eyes. And, uh, and the reason, yeah, that's, that's awesome, isn't it? That's awesome. And so, hey, keep drinking that coffee out there. All the profits go to our missionaries and to all of our missionary efforts. And so when she said that, make it a quadruple. Yeah. I mean, so it's, uh, so it's awesome, awesome what's going on. Uh, there's no shortage of things that we're doing here. We just sent four pallets of water to the Phoenix Rescue Mission. We got a Mexico trip uh, planned here towards the end of the summer. School supplies drive coming up, paint-a-thon. So many things going on. You guys are doing an awesome job. Keep up the good work. CrossFit is our current teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. Sincere love is the title of this weekend's message. Take a look at your notes there at the top of those notes. First John gives us three tests for genuine Christianity. So you claim to be a Christian. He gives us tests to see if indeed you really are. First one is a doctrinal test. That would be, what do you believe about Jesus? Who's Jesus? Do you believe him to be God in the flesh coming to this world to rescue us from our sins? And that's, that's the first test, obviously much more to that doctrinal test than just what, what I said. But if you have encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it seems to me that uh, you are no longer suited for a normal life. You're going to be different as a result of that. And so the next test would be a moral test. You're going to begin to want to follow him. And in following him, you're going to want to obey everything that he teaches. So, so the first test is doctrinal. Second test is moral. And then the third test would be the social test. You can see and you can follow and read these. Uh, doctrinal test, 1 John 5.1. Moral test, 1 John 3.9. And social test, 1 John 4.7. Social test is basically that your capacity for love for God and for others will increase substantially. It is possible to have both doctrinal accuracy and moral integrity and not be a loving person. Huh? Yes, absolutely. You become what the Bible calls a Pharisee. And Jesus was especially hard on the Pharisees because they were very religious because he even said this, and you can, you can find this in, uh, actually, where is that found? Oh, it's in, found in Matthew 15, 8. They worship me with their lips, but they're what? Their hearts are far from me. So you can kind of robotically kind of go through the checklist and even maybe showed up here this morning, go through the checklist, went to church, did this, did that, have all your doctrine in order, all your ducks in a row doctrinally, all your ducks in a row as it relates to morality, and yet, and yet, be really hard to live with, and there's something wrong with that. There's something really, really wrong with that. That's the third test because Jesus made it very clear by this all men, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? What was that? Love, love for one another. So let me ask you this. When people bring up the topic of Christians in our culture today, what do you think comes to mind when they start talking about Christians? Would they say, oh, Christians? Yes, they are extraordinary and their love for one another. What do you think? Not usually. 
Not usually. It's sad. That would be a very sad commentary of our times. Because Jesus said, when people talk about you, when people get to know you, if there's any characteristic that should come out in your life, it should be your love for one another. In fact, when they come and hang out with us, they they should say this, oh my goodness, extraordinary love for God and for one another. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And maybe it takes a little bit of time because it takes time to get to know people. But that's what people should be saying. That's what Jesus said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Doctrine's important. Morality's really important. But you can be doing the doctrine and the morality all for wrong reasons, for selfish and self-centered reasons. That's what the Pharisees were doing. It's what would be classified as common virtue. You're motivated out of fear and, tri- uh, fear and pride versus true virtue where you are motivated out of a heart that's overtaken by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Totally different. That's why we've got to always look at our motives. Why do we do what we do? Why am I here at church? Is it because, you know, I have to? Is it because I want to and because I've been overtaken? I've been captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. Major difference between the two. So, so you might have, and, and I, I applaud that. We study doctrine around here. That's important. Morality is really important. But, but if that's not bringing you to a place of increased capacity for passion for Jesus and compassion for others, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. And so uh, let me ask you this. You know, if you are a demanding person, if you're a critical person, if you're a cold person, if you're a distant person, if you're not very approachable or vulnerable, if you're not a giving and forgiving person, we've got to take a serious look at our lives. You may have your doctrine and your morality all in alignment, but there's a disconnect. Your, your head is not connecting with your heart, nor are your hands connecting with your heart. There's, got to, there's a disconnect, and you're really missing really one of the most important things about the Christian faith, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this text. Really a wonderful text as we, as we explore this. Father God, if there, if there is anything that should characterize the lives of those who follow, follow you, Lord Jesus, it is love. And yet, too often, it's not the case, primarily because, because we're not living, we're not enjoying, we're not basking, we're not savoring your amazing love for us through the sacrifice of, of your son, Jesus. So, so we pray through, through our Bible study today, as it says in Ephesians three sixteen through 19, that according to the riches of your glory, that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and established in love and may have strength to comprehend with all your people what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of that love, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this text. Wonderful text. We've been spending uh, some time uh, on this, a couple weeks, and we'll spend this week and one more week in this text, verses 22 all the way into chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Let me bring you up to speed. The context, first 12 verses of 1 Peter are talking about our salvation. It's the indicatives. These are the facts. This is what we have. This is the wealth 
of the resources we have so we can get through the fiery trials of life. And then he moves from the indicatives to the imperatives in verse 13, which he goes from our wealth to our walk. This is how we will walk as a result of what we have in him. We spent a considerable amount of time on holiness, found a really a great definition this last week on holiness. Holiness is someone who is so happy in God that sin has no appeal anymore. I think it's a great definition. And so we spent a considerable time really looking at that, holiness. And then he moves into this idea of, of, we talked about being born again, and you'll see the context here. And he talks about purifying your souls. In fact, let me, let me pick up the reading in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why would we want to do that? Because you have, since you have been born again, talked about that, that life that we have through Jesus Christ. We've been made alive to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, and it's transformed our hearts. And so as we purify our souls by obedience to the truth, we're going to have sincere love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, notice this. Now, he's describing us, not just physically, but spiritually. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. Stop there just for a minute. So what he's describing, I mean, what happens to the grass here in, um, in the desert? It, it doesn't, if you don't water it, it dies, doesn't it? It gets pretty, uh, pretty whatever. What is it? Yeah, it just, it dries up, dies. And what he's, he's describing our life physically, that we are headed towards this place of death. We're going to perish. How many are finding that um, uh, as you uh, mark years off the calendar, your, your body aches just a tad more every year? Show of hands. Now, when I was in my 30s and headed into my 40s, I started noticing it really significantly. I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then I had people that were in their 50s. They said to me, just wait until you hit your 50s. So now I'm in my 50s, and I've got people that are in their 60s and 70s that says, just wait until you hit 60s and 70s. And, and I can hardly wait. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes I can't even get out of bed in the morning. It takes me just like 30 minutes as I stumble around. What's wrong with my legs and back and my body? And that's what he's saying. He's saying we're perishing. We're perishing. And, and then he says that we're perishing. Most importantly, we're perishing spiritually. And we don't have to perish spiritually if we've been made alive. Because when we, when we commit our life to Jesus, when we die physically, we haven't died spiritually because we, we, when we take our last breath on earth, we take our first breath in heaven <laughs> to be with him for all eternity. And that's what he's talking about here if we've been born again. And, uh, and so and then he goes on, and this word, oh, so, oh, verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it was the preaching of the good word brought conviction, and we repented and put our faith in Jesus. We were made alive in him, whole new kind of life. And then he goes on, chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Verse 2, like newborn infants, I've got to stop there just for a minute and give you some, uh, some news about new for, newborn infants. You guys are going to have a baby. You guys are pregnant right up here, Tommy and Caitlin. They just told us this morning. So they're, they're pregnant. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. You didn't know I was going to announce it to everybody here, but I, I had to. 
It's talking about newborn infants, but, but you guys know that I have six grandsons, and we just found out that the seventh is going to be a granddaughter. Isn't that amazing? And I told my wife, first thing I said, don't you dare spoil her. She goes, what about you? Well, I can do that, okay? So as we're thinking about that, like newborn infants, so he's, he's comparing us to newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Next week we're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk about uh, really the um, stages and the strategies for spiritual growth. What does that look like? How do we do that? How do we increase that in our lives? And then verse 3, wonderful verse. He's really basically quoting um, Psalm 34, 8. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So when you've tasted that the Lord is good, it's the uh, pedal to the metal. You want more of him. You want to know him more. You want to grow in your relationship with him. You just are captivated by his amazing love. So this is God's word to us this morning. Now, we're going to talk about two questions we're answering. What is sincere love? And then how to sincerely love. How do you do that? And so this is really, as I was looking at this study, this is really when you talk about sincere love, and particularly the context here, and looking at our own lives, this is really about conflict resolution. That's one aspect of sincere love, but we're going to focus on conflict resolution. Um, As the great theologian Napoleon Dynamite said, um, (laughs) he said, girls like guys with skills. And... uh, Computer hacking skills, nunchuck skills, and conflict resolution skills. Okay, he didn't actually say that last one. I added that one. But, uh, but if you want to be successful in life, you need to have some conflict resolution skills. We're going to talk about that this morning. How do you work through the issues of your life? How do you work through those things? Too often I've seen, I see people respond inappropriately, and I do the same thing. We all fall prey to that, so we're going to look at that and see how we can do that. So first of all, what is sincere love? It is loving other Christians like family. Did you notice in verse 22 of our text, he says, sincere brotherly love. I grew up in a church background where we would call each other brother and sister. Anybody grew up in a background like that? And, you know, it didn't seem odd then, but now when I look back on it, you know, if we started doing that, I guess it would be okay. But what they were trying to get across is like, you know, for instance, you come up to me and you might call me Brother Ray. And you'd call my wife Sister Nancy. And that's, and that's very common in some circles. You guys, you guys are familiar with that, aren't you? You've heard that. Or, and, and the reason for that is that, hey, there's a, there's a connection. There's a family connection, and that's really what he's saying. I gave you a whole slew of verses here that you can look up to help you to understand that more clearly. But let me give you a, a quick story of, of how I would relate this to us. Uh, I grew up in a home, three siblings, uh, older sister Vicky, younger sister Aloha. And we would, <laughs> we would fight. Anybody grow up with siblings where you fought with each other? Yep, 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 sibling rivalry. But here's the interesting thing about our family is that though we fought with each other, we fought for each other even more. And um, when I started high school, um, I was uh, 98 pounds, five foot tall. Look out, I'm one tough dude. I was just a little runt. My sister, you know, she's a couple grades ahead of me. She was, she was a pretty tough gal. And her and I rode the school bus from hell. <laughs> it came out of New River. They picked up kids from New River, and these kids were mean. Nothing against you if you came from New River. 
But these kids were mean. And then when they'd get to our section, there was a whole bunch of kids that would get on the bus, and all the kids from New River would take a whole seat to themselves in the back of the bus, and then the, you know, the whole bunch of kids from our area would crowd into the front half of the bus, three to four to a seat. You're only supposed to put three in a seat, but three to four, and, and then the rest all standing in the aisle, halfway up. And I remember the, the bus driver's name was Les, and he, he had no control over the bus, and he would be looking back, and you know the big window, the big... Uh, he has the big mirror. He'd be looking back there and go, you kids, you quit, stop that. And they'd go, hey, screw you, bus driver. You know, they'd say stuff like that. They'd be back there smoking and smoking pot and just creating all kinds of problems. And so when we would get on the bus, my sister would grab me by the hand and says, we're not standing. It's, it's dangerous. We're going to go find us a seat. Now, you got to understand something about my sister. She could throw a punch like my dad. She, she was just like, man, she'd set you up with the left and go, whack, boom. She'd hit just like a guy. Not like girls <laughs> or some guys. <gasps> some guys hit like that. They can't help it. But it's probably how I hit when I was, you know, five foot, 98 pounds. <laughs> And, uh, and she would just like, man, she would just knock you into next week. And I'll never forget this. And we walked back to the bus almost every, every time the bus would pick us up. And she goes, we're going to get us a seat. She'd walk back there and the kids' the feet were across the seat. She said, would you please move your feet? And he wouldn't. So she'd almost put him through the back window of the bus by flipping him up out of the seat. I said, move. Walk. And they would all try to intimidate her and pick a fight with her, but she just she would she would uh, call their bluff and just back them down. And uh, so we would we would fight with each other. We would fight for each other. She had my back, and there wasn't a time when we didn't have a seat back there. <laughs> Vidicky from Russia, <laughs> steroid UFC fighter. She was tough. She's still tough. I mean, it's just pretty amazing. I'll never forget this. Not only did she fight for me, her brother, but she fought for a gal in there. And we, I remember this uh, in the bus, and they took these black magic markers, a whole bunch of them, and this girl was kind of trapped in the back, and they were hitting her with magic markers. They were writing all over her. Oh, well, you should have saw my sister. She just lost it. She went back there and grabbed that girl and brought her up to her seat, and she went back there and sat. And then when they even attempted to try to mark her with a magic marker, she was going to shove those magic markers where they wouldn't want them. <laughs> I mean, she was just, and, and here's, the, here's the point, is that, yeah, we, we would fight each other, but we would fight for each other, and she would even fight for a stranger. And I thought that that really demonstrated this sincere love for one another. I just thought, wow, that's, and as I think back and reflect on those days, that's how we are here. We're gonna fight. We're going to fight with each other, but not near as much as we're going to fight for each other. We're going to cover each other's backs. By the way, you need to know this. I've got a lot of relatives in this church, and don't be bad-mouthing me. <laughs> don't be slandering me because they're going to come after you. But you know what? I know my relatives. They'll fight for you just as much as they would fight for me. So, In fact, they'd probably agree with you if you started bad-mouthing me. Okay? Go, yeah, he's pretty screwed up. He really needs Jesus, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, so, so that's... So that's, but, but you know what? That's, that's the church. That's the body of Christ. And uh, here's kind of how I put it in the notes here. So this is a meeting of needs of those in your local church family 
with the same amount of thought, emotion, and action that you would meet your own family's needs. By the way, you can't do this if you're not connected, you know, relationally with people. And particularly, that's why we do small groups here. It's really important to connect at a deeper level. And so the more you connect, yeah, you're going to get into, you know, little skirmishes and little fights, but man, you're going to fight for each other unlike anything before because you're family. That's part of it. Now, now when, when I put the bar where the bar needs to be, that you, would, that you would, with the same thought, emotion, and action, meet the needs of others as much as you would meet your own needs, that's a pretty high bar. And I don't know that any of us really do that that well. In other words, do you celebrate the academic and athletic you know, successes of others within our church family as you would your own families, uh, academic and athletic successes? And that's what he's talking about here. I don't, I don't think LeBron James, when, uh, with the Heat, when they got beat by the, uh, the Spurs, San Antonio Spurs, was it four to one, something like that in that series? Is that I don't think that he was like, good job, guys. I'm so happy for you, just as if I had wanted. No, he was pretty upset, wasn't he? So this is a level of love that goes beyond us, and that brings us to the next point here. It is a love that we are utterly incapable of doing. And that's the reason why he surrounds this love with being born again and then also growing in maturity since you have been born again. Being born again is being alive to, the lo- to a love that is unbelievable, to a joy that is unspeakable, to a peace that is, that is unbeatable from the presence of the creator of the universe in our lives. Take a look at the third point here. So it is a love alive, born again, and growing in God's love. So the only way that we're going to be able to pull this off is that we have to be alive, we have to be born again and growing. That's what these verses are surrounded by. And growing in God's love, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Did you notice that your souls are purified as you obey the truth? What is the truth? What is the truth? The truth is that we are going to put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow into salvation. And so let me read to you a text here real quick that... uh, kind of helps us to understand this. First John, I told you in First John, he gives, you, gives us the test of whether or not we're Christians. Verse, first John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, beloved, I love that, how he, he, he's calling us, we are beloved, we are beloved of God. Do you see yourself as, uh, as one who God greatly admires and loves? You are his beloved. That's what he's going to use this a couple times just in these few verses. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if, if you're loving one another, you're just proving that you know God. You've been born of God because God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is that? Propitiation, that means that all the wrath that was meant for us, the wrath of God, we are enemies of God, and Jesus took that on himself. Listen to me, this is what separates Christianity from all other religions. All other religions is a works righteousness. You've got to hit this punch list of items 
you know, uh, virtuous behavior, moralism, whatever it is, and then maybe you will please God and he'll let you in. That's not how Christianity works. It's actually quite the opposite. He did everything that is necessary for you through the cross. So it's a matter of putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Why wouldn't you be overtaken by the love of Christ because of what he's done for you? You know that big eternal uh, chasm that separated you from God? That's been bridged through the cross. And so it's a gift from God. And so beloved, uses the word again, so you understand? You're beloved, beloved. If God so loved us, also, we also ought to love one another. Now check this out, verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's the best way for people to see God? By our love for one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And so, so it is loving other Christians like family. We are incapable of doing this unless we are really born again and growing in his love. And so love for God and others grows out of a growing experience of God's love for us. So the more you abide... Make your home in Christ's love, reflecting on it, enjoying it, saturated in it, the more you will love God in others. So if you want to increase your passion for God and compassion for others, you need to be regularly swept up into intimate loving encounters with God. The more you are, the more you will love God and love others. And this is, this is what's totally amazing about what I just read and what we're looking at here this morning, that he actually wants us and wants us to be with him is overwhelming. The creator of the universe actually wants us and wants us to be with him. And he did everything necessary for us to be with him for time and for eternity. And it's a gift. That's amazing. That's amazing. So how do I increase in my love? My love is, is lacking. Well, spend time reflecting on his love, enjoying his love, talking about his love, and then that'll begin to really work in your life. Now let's move to this next part. So, so that what is sincere love? That's what sincere love is, how to sincerely love. And, and so typically when we are offended in a relationship, we typically respond in one of two wrong ways, sinful ways. The first one is we fight. The second one is we flight. So, so if you have sincere love, you don't fight or flight, but you face. You face the conflict. Uh, fighting is the open aggression. You, you just kind of blow up. Someone's offended you, they've hurt you, You'll go, you go get them and hate them. We'll set them straight. That's that open aggression. And the other one is, to, is flight. You don't go get them, you just hate them. Maybe talk about them behind their back. That's passive aggression, you just kind of clam up. But the Bible actually teaches that we should face, face them, go get them and love them and work on forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust, the trust that has been violated. Now, the Latin word for confront means to turn your face towards something or someone. Now, you've got to be in touch with your natural inclination to either fight or flight. I know that for myself, it depends on the people and it depends on the circumstances, but I can do both of them quite well, okay? And so, uh, what you want to do is learn to face the, the conflict. You guys have heard me uh, say this many times before. Let me just show you what this is based on. Verse 22, sincere love earnestly from a pure heart. So what you're wanting to do is love people, even people that have offended you, that have hurt you. You're wanting to love them from a pure heart. Pure heart means with your, 
with your, all of your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions. Conflict is inevitable. Do you agree with that? Combat is optional, okay? How you deal with that is really, basic, you know, how you choose whether you're going to face it or not. And, and by the way, do not run from conflict. I tell couples this all the time. And I see people run from conflict even at church. They get into a small group, it creates a little conflict, and they run from it. And I'm telling you, God is using conflict as an opportunity. Whatever conflict you're going through, guess what he's doing? I can tell you exactly what he's doing. He's wanting you to learn how to trust in him. And he's wanting to increase your maturity and your intimacy with him. And when it comes to conflict this way, horizontally, he's wanting to increase your maturity and intimacy with others. But if you run from that, you miss out on some great opportunity for growth. And so, and so don't run from conflict. And you also need to know this. Relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. You know, the baby dedication we did, I, I told the... Uh, I, 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 uh, told Josh and uh, Tori that I said the most important thing that you can do is for you to be healthy as individuals to seek a, a sense of wholeness and be healthy and then as you relate to one another you'll create a, a, an environment of wholeness and then uh, Elena your daughter will, will see that and grow up in that context so relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships therefore individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships work on you Allow God to work on you. Because it works like this. If you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on your own through Christ, all of your relationships will become an effort to complete yourself. All you can bring to those relationships is, is emptiness, is incompleteness. But if you have a sense of contentment and completeness in Christ, then you're going to respond to the person more appropriately, less with fight or flight, but more with facing the issues at hand and doing that in a loving way. And so, really, the, the first thing you need is your identity in Christ. Always keep coming back to your identity in Christ. Fill yourself with his love. Allow him to, to just overtake you with his love. Reflect on his love. Realize what you have in his love. The second thing is that you need some good uh, anger management skills. I gave you some good cross-references there, Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. And uh, those verses go like this. Be angry, but don't sin. So the Bible says there are certainly appropriate times to be angry, but it's how you are angry. You need to not sin in your anger. And it says don't let the sun go down on your anger so you need to be processing. By the way, uh, one of the ways that we get angry is we get hurt. And so sometimes that anger begins to, to fester within us. And then he says, so deal with it before the end of the day, so to speak. You should be processing it because if you don't, you're giving the devil a foothold. Now, I gave you another verse there also, Hebrews 12, 15. And he says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So he's, he's almost speaking urgently. Listen, listen to me. Make sure you don't miss out on the grace of God. God's amazing grace in your life. And a bitter root grows up in your heart, causes trouble, and then that defiles many in your life because of the unforgiveness that you've allowed to fester in your heart like cancer. And so what we've got to do, if we're going to not fight or flight but face conflict issues, we've got to learn to not only find our completeness and contentment in Christ, but we've got to learn to manage our anger and process it and keep coming back to Christ and let him to heal us so that we can not overreact or underreact but respond appropriately. And of course, the third, third thing we need to do here is that 
whether you are the offended or the offender. So who should move first, the offended or the offender? Who should move first in, in the direction of reconciliation? Yell it out to me. What do you guys think? Both. 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 It doesn't matter. Whether you are the offended or the offender, the Bible says you take the first step. I got the verses there for you. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. It talks about if you've offended somebody. And by the way, you know how you, have, you know that you've offended somebody? If they're passive in their aggression, it's going to take a long time to understand that because, they're, because they wear a mask for the most part. But, uh, but in time, I could tell that I had offended my wife because she was kind of shut down to me, you know, uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I try to reach out to her and she'd kind of give me the cold shoulder. She wouldn't look me in the eyes. She'd change the locks on all the doors. <laughs> When I came home, it's like that's kind of a sign that you probably have offended her. So that you look for a closed spirit, and so you go, hey, is everything, be, is everything okay? Because I know sometimes she would respond to me. She'd like maybe overreact, which she very seldom does, but she would overreact. She goes, go do it yourself. Like, okay, did I say something? I'm sorry. Did I say something that was offensive to you? I noticed that, are you on edge? Are you okay? I love you. So you kind of reach out to them. You say, that's, how you, that's how you disarm the bomb, the potential bomb. And, and, and so you do that. And then, uh, and then if you've been hurt, you've got to talk to them because it'll, it'll build up until you blow up. You're not going to respond appropriately to that. Here's the next thing. So you don't fight or flight, but you face. Here's the next one. You deal with conflict as a sinner saved by grace. You deal with conflict as a sinner saved by grace. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the word. Did you notice, and I already made this clear, that our souls are purified, not first and then obedience, but it's through our obedience to the truth. So what is the truth? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, we talked about uh, this idea of the truth. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive by grace you are saved. So here's the truth about all of us, that we are and this is, once again, this is what separates Christianity from any other belief system. We are sinners saved by grace, by God's favor, unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We just enter into it by putting our faith in Jesus. And so, so that will make a difference in how I uh, face conflict in my life, in my relationships. Um, for instance, a sinner saved by good works, performance will respond to conflict in one of two ways, different from a sinner who's saved by grace. Uh, a sinner saved by good works will respond to conflict in one of two ways, either by superiority or inferiority. Superiority would be more towering, and that makes sense. If I'm, if I'm saved by my performance, when I'm hitting the checklist, I'm going to feel pretty good about myself. I'm going to feel a little better than you. So there's going to be more of that towering, and I'm going to let you have it from time to time because you, you're not living up to the standard that I'm living up to. It's obvious. So I'm going to let you have it, and that's, that's all truth and no, no grace, no love. That's the uh, superiority. But if I'm not hitting the standard, I'm going to feel a little inferior. There might be times where I go from, from pride to despair, and that creates an inferiority, and it's going to be all love and, and no truth. That's more of that cowering. And, and that would be evidence of that. Let me, let me help you walk through that. So, the, and this would be, you would be classified as an unsafe person if you have an attitude of superiority, inferiority, as a result of your, your performance. It's, um, it's Phariseeism is what it is. But it's superiority, towering. This is truth without love. 
This would be a person that's uh, self-righteous, holier-than-thou, condescending, condemning, con uh, demanding, domineering, cold, distant, argumentative, and defensive. They think they have it all together instead of admitting weaknesses. They're defensive instead of open to feedback. They demand trust instead of earning it over time based on performance. They stay in parent-child roles instead of relating as equals. So have you ever been in a relationship before where the person almost treats you like you're some, like a little kid? It's like, that's messed up. I've had, I've even worked for companies before where they would almost treat you like you're a little kid. It was, it was pretty strange, but that's what he's talking about here. That's the superiority. But then the inferiority, the cowering, love without truth, this is someone who is insecure, easily offended, envious, pretense and mask wearing is common, secluded, isolated from people, so they tend to isolate not usually want to connect with others in small group settings. They avoid closeness instead of connecting. They flatter instead of confront. They blame shift rather than take responsibility. They complain about people behind their back rather than be open with them face to face. They are desperate for affirmation rather than emotionally wealthy. By the way, it is never, ever, ever loving to allow someone to sin against you. And, and typically, the, the, the cowering love without truth, the inferiority type person will tend to let people trample over them. It's not loving. It's not loving to let someone sin against you. And in fact, any love that is afraid to confront is not really love, but a kind of emotional hunger, a selfish desire to be loved. So, so when you look at the cross, when you look at Christianity, this is what it's telling you. And this is how it will help you as you confront others and face the issues of conflict in your relationships horizontally is that you and I are more sinful than we ever dare to think. Therefore, that deals with the attitude of superiority. I'm not going to come after you and be domineering and dogmatic and, and, and feeling like I'm holier than thou. I'm a sinner just like you. So that eliminates that superiority. So I'm not going to hurt you, offend you. I'm going to do everything I can not to offend you. But it also, you need to know the other side. The other side is that you and I are more loved than we ever dared to dream. And so that eliminates inferiority. Nor am I going to let you hurt me. Does that make sense? So you're not going to hurt them, nor are you going to allow them uh, to hurt you. You see the balance? It's a wonderful balance of humble confidence. We've got issues to work with. Let's work through these because through this, we can grow in our intimacy with God and maturity with him and also with one another. So let's roll up our sleeves and do this. And so that's, that's what that person ultimately does. Um, and let me, uh, let me share with you one more story here and then we'll finish up. We're almost done um, as it relates to this last uh, point, this point and the next point. In fact, let me give you the point and I'll share the story. You speak the truth. You speak the truth in love. And that's what you're ultimately wanting to do. Did you notice verse 22, sincere brotherly love? He said, sincere brotherly love, it means truthful love. Just truthful love. You're just being open and honest. That was really offensive when you said that. I'm glad that my wife feels safe enough to be able to say those things to me. She, said, she, she has said things like, hey, when you said that or when you did that, that really, really hurt me. And in the past, I was very defensive towards that. But in time, my heart began to melt, began to realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a mess. I tended to have that more of that superiority when it came to her. So God has worked on my heart. The next word is this idea. Is, uh, so he says, sincere brotherly love is truthful love, and then love one another earnestly is strenuous love. It's, it's an, the idea here is stretched to the limit, 
kind of an athletic term. Same word that's used when Jesus was in the garden and praying, strenuous, praying out, crying out to God. This just means that you'll never give up on someone. Now, quick story here. Nancy and I, uh, about seven, eight years, it'll be about eight years ago, we, we uh, celebrated our 30th uh, wedding anniversary by going to Scotland for 10 days, hung out with the McClanathans. Uh, they were part of Desert Breeze. And so we went and hung out with them and, um, there, and they told us a lot of different things that were cultural. And one of the things that was very interesting about that culture was that make sure you don't do this to anybody because that's like flipping them off. So when you do this, backhanded too. So I just flipped all of you guys off, okay? I said, make sure you don't do that. Well, it was coming down to the end of, the, of our trip. We stopped into a little pastry shop. They had both uh, savory and sweet pastries. And so I was standing there in line, and Nancy, I couldn't make up my mind. Like, typical, I can't make up my mind when I'm standing in line there. And uh, so Nancy, talking to the gal behind the counter, said, I'll have one of those uh, meat-filled pastries. And I like, yeah, that looks really good. Make that too. And... Uh, she responded, the gal behind the counter goes, back to you. <laughs> and then my friends go, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And I go, I, I, I'm just a dumb American. I mean, I just didn't, I mean, I, I, and the gal didn't want to have anything to do with me after that. It was just like, okay, I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. You just flipped me off. And, I, and so I didn't do it purposely, and yet I, I had that sense of the offense, and I tried to do everything I could to... Uh, to overcome that and apologize. Now, here's the thing that I'm, I'm wanting you to understand. Whether you intended to or not, if the person is offended, you still seek forgiveness, reconciliation, and to reestablish the trust. Now, over time, if every time you sneeze, the person is offended, then we need to kind of look at their life to see maybe they're bringing some baggage into this relationship and they're hypersensitive in some form or fashion. But it doesn't matter what matters more than anything, and my wife has been offended at times when I know that I didn't mean it. I know I didn't intend to, and yet she was offended, and yet I was willing to, to, to take it on. Say, hey, listen, that's the last thing I want. I don't want you to be offended. I want us to have good open relationships. I don't want anything that would close you down. I want that level of intimacy that we, we so desperately need. Does that make sense? See, that's that strenuous love. That's that, that uh, truthful love, strenuous love. That's what he's saying here, strenuous and uh, let me read, to, read you a quote here. This is from Tim Kelly. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. So love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms but keeps us in denial about our flaws. By the way, I gave you some good cross-references there is that we really aren't going to grow unless we're speaking the truth in love to one another. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 25 make that very clear. And then he goes on and he says, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. So the more I'm in touch with my own sinfulness, the more I appreciate his grace. The more I appreciate his grace, the more I'm open with my own sinfulness. I can be open and honest because he loves me and he forgives me and takes care of me. Therefore, I will also create an atmosphere just like that. And so this is how we're going to end it. Um, so let me read to you something here. And so by this, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Are you alive and growing in God's love to the degree 
that you are connecting and loving other Christians with the same thought, emotion, and action you would have for your own family. When you are offended or the offender, do you seek out others as a sinner saved by grace, seeking them for forgiveness, reconciliation, and rebuilding trust? Are you becoming relentlessly giving and forgiving, warm, open, approachable, gracious, vulnerable person? Are you connecting with others at a deep level and open to criticism and, in fact, invite it without excuse-making or blame-shifting and defensiveness? Are you able to speak the truth in such a way that people would say, I don't want to hear what they have to say, but I can't deny that they love me? In other words, you would speak the truth with them in such a way that it would be melt-in-your-mouth sweet, that they cannot deny your love. See, this is the only way you really know you're a sinner saved by grace. This is that connection between your doctrine, your morality, and now that social test, love for one another. How do, we, how do we nurture that and get back to that? Well, take a look at the end of your notes. This is where we end. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you've got to regularly taste the goodness of the Lord. You've got to savor that. You've got to enjoy it. And I wrote here a quote from Sinclair Ferguson, a message I heard not too long ago. And this is what he said. Love is measured by three indicators. Number one, identity of the lover. The greater the lover, the greater the love. Now think about our lover. He calls us beloved. So the greater the lover, the greater the love. The creator of the universe loves us. Second indicator of how love is measured, the object of that love. The lesser the object, the greater the love. He's holy, we are sinful. He's infinite, we're finite. Third indicator, the expression of that love. The greater the expression, the more marvelous the love. What it costs you to be with him is nothing compared to what it cost him to be with you. He died for you. And I. So this is where we end. Stand with me. Here's our verse. Here's where you're going to be sent out of here with blessing and, and prayer. It's found in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. And this is what it says. Therefore, look up on the screens. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You're his beloved. Do you have any idea what he's done for you? So therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.